everyone, and welcome to the Hardcore Finance Show with Shimon and Alex. Today, we have a very special uh, guest, Sinead Colton Grand. But first, this segment is brought to you by the Hardcore Finance Show's partnership with Caviar Fair Magazine and Caviar Gems, the world's first and most extraordinary dehydrated caviar. And with our new partnership with Defiance Media, we're a 24 7 linear curated network of content that covers disruptive innovations such as blockchain biotech, AI, robotics, and is delivered to over 50 million U.S. households. So on the show today, Shimon and I are super thrilled to welcome Sinead Colton-Grant of BNY Mellon. Sinead is the Global Head of Investor Solutions, a group that draws on deep expertise in investment research and design and portfolio management across public and private assets to deliver targeted investment outcomes for clients. She also leads the Responsible Investment Practice and Digital Asset Initiatives. Sinead has over 20 years of experience in investments. She joined BNY Mellon Wealth Management in 2020 as the Deputy Chief Investment Officer and Head of Equities. She chaired the Equity Strategy Committee and was the Vice Chair of the Investment Policy Committee. Previously, she was the Head of Global Investment and Product Strategy for Mellon. Prior to Mellon, Sinead served as Managing Director and Investment Strategy and for the multi-asset client solutions group at BlackRock and Barclays. There, she designed tailored investment solutions for institutional and wealth management clients in the UK and Central Europe. Sinead also held portfolio management roles at JP Morgan and was a founding partner and head of portfolio management at Lee Overly Partners. Sinead earned her MS in finance from the London Business School and a BBS in finance from Dublin City University in Ireland, and was honored as one of the Irish American magazines Wall Street 50 in 2018 and 2019, which recognizes the contributions of Irish Americans and Irish-born leaders in the financial industry. So Sinead, super thrilled to have you. You have one of the most impressive resumes I think I've encountered in my career, and we're just uh, we're excited to have and talk to you about digital assets. So welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Alex, and thank you for that very generous introduction. Of course, of course, and you deserve it. But beyond, you know, your professional credentials, maybe tell us a little bit about how you got into the space, specifically within digital assets, and what's your outlook on the digital asset space? There's a lot of there are a lot of different conflicting uh, 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 movements or or or. or or pieces in the news that are flying around, headlines from anything to from this is the future to this is a complete Ponzi scheme. So how did you get into this after having such a storied career in, in traditional finance? Well, I have to tell you, my background and where I started in finance was in currency, in foreign exchange, um, and uh, which is a, it's a very particular part of finance. And what what was particularly interesting to me um, it actually went back to when I was at university. So one of the, the summer breaks, I was planning um, a trip with some girlfriends. So we were based in Ireland. We were going to go to Italy for a little trip at the end of the summer before we started back at college. And um, it was back when there was an Italian lira. So we were, you know, watching the exchange rate between the Irish punt and the Italian lira to kind of figure out how much money we would have to spend. And the day I went to go and change my money into lira, I came out with an awfully lot more lira than I was expecting. And what had happened was that um, that was when there was the um, the exchange rate mechanism crisis, the old ERM, the precursor to the euro, um, and Italy had devalued their currency. They'd fallen out of the, the ERM. And that was the first thing where I thought, oh, there's something going on in this whole currency business that seems kind of interesting. So, so that's what got me interested in currency. And then, you know, we fast forward to today. The thing that's fascinating to me about digital currency is that, you know, we really are seeing the advent of a new asset class. Um, it is a, a currency, yes, but it's more than that, potentially. It has characteristics that blend a store of value with other characteristics that are like a currency. And, and really, I mean, look, as I've progressed in my career, my lens has broadened from currency to macro asset allocation. And of course, now broader solutions that span, you know, every asset class. But the first market I look at every day is, is currency. It's still the draw for me. And so when digital currencies emerged, it, it was something that really piqued my curiosity. And, 
And frankly, what's really interesting about them um, and the whole technology, the, black, the blockchain technology um, itself is it has the potential to be completely transformative for financial markets. And look, I mean, that, that's not necessarily what's going to happen tomorrow. We're talking about over an extended period of time. But when you look at some of the frictions that still exist today in financial markets that really haven't changed for a long time, blockchain technology has the potential to help us leapfrog um, and really create a financial system that's um, much more democratized. Yeah, that, that's uh, so interesting that on the one hand, things haven't really changed. And I've been mentioning this a lot, right? Uh, I'm in San Francisco doing all these fintech meetups and everybody's innovating, but the innovation is just UX mostly. <laughs> like there's no true innovation in the traditional finance. But what we have seen um, a huge change is monetary policy. So since COVID, right, we've seen many unprecedented things. Uh, in, in the macro environment in general. So what are your thoughts on that? And, and especially how do digital assets play into those unprecedented uh, things we're seeing currently? Well, it's a great question. And, and I, I think there were two components to this. The first, obviously, we saw enormous central bank reaction to what was anticipated was going to be an, a, an extraordinary economic downturn and a very, very swift one. Um, but that loosening of monetary policy across the board, um, and, and let's, let's cast our minds back, the, the US Federal Reserve was really the only central bank, the only major central bank that had been able to raise interest rates to any material degree post the financial crisis. Um, but that unwinding, that um, uh, significant loosening of policy brings with it uh, a, a significant boost to asset values. Now, look, back in March of 2020, um, markets were in free fall. There was no way to um, to know whether that monetary policy cushioning was going to be required um, to to put um, a backstop under the economy. Um, but given what we've seen since in terms of the um, how quickly certain sectors of the economy have recovered, particularly those that are digitally enabled, what's happened as a result is that the loose monetary policy has led to an increase in asset values across the board. We've seen it in equity markets. We've seen it in um, real assets. We've seen it in, um, in government bonds. Um, and it's a natural consequence, right, when you think about how you would value those assets with interest rates so low. Um, now, of course, there's differentiation within that. It, um, while equities in aggregate have done well, it has been the market has been quite selective. And it's really only been this year where we've seen those more value-oriented sectors begin to make up some of that ground. Um, as a consequence of that, you've also seen the dollar weaken, right? Currencies, traditional currencies, tend to um, react to the rate of change uh, rather than necessarily the level. So, um, so even though interest rates elsewhere in the world were so low, it was the fact that the Federal Reserve was cutting rates, and so the, the trajectory of rates and the rate of change in U.S. rates had, um, was much more negative from a currency perspective, which is why you saw the dollar weakness. Um, but I think what's interesting when it comes to digital assets is twofold. The first is that what we've seen when we look at the economy more broadly, um, that those sectors of the economy that were more technology enabled and those businesses and companies that were able to pivot and really change the trajectory of the, uh, the technology that they um, uh, that underpinned them really benefited from the uh, the COVID environment, right? And across the board, we saw this leap towards digital. Consumers who um, perhaps had been more reticent were forced to embrace it across, you know, every, um, uh, almost every part that touched their lives. And so when we then start to think about digital assets, there are two things that become very interesting in, in this context. The first is that when interest rates are this low and the economy seems to be booming in the way that it is, and I do use that word um, cautiously because clearly this has not been a rising tide that has lifted every single boat and we're very conscious of that. But the thing that starts to come to the fore in terms of uh, a significant concern is, of course, inflation. Um, now, we have not seen inflation to any really material degree in several decades. Even post the financial crisis, 
with the all of the accommodation that was in place, the the two major trends that kept inflation under um, uh, reasonably subdued were um, technology, of course, um, and demographics. And both of those factors are are still in place. But the the concern remains that if inflation were to take hold, um, how that could impact asset pricing. And it could be very detrimental for a number of um, uh, traditional assets, at, at least in the short term. Longer term, equities do a pretty good job of hedging against inflation, but, but not when you see those shorter term spikes. So what's really interesting about digital currencies such as Bitcoin is that element of their, uh, of their DNA that's more like a store of value. Because they're separated from any individual economy, which means they're also separated from any individual monetary policy. And so in theory, that should mean that if you have an asset that sits outside that um, more traditional financial ecosystem, potentially it could act as something like a quasi-digital gold. Now, Bitcoin, of course, is finite in terms of the amount of supply in the same way that gold is effectively finite. Um, so that's a very interesting potential characteristic. And I say potential because we really haven't seen this type of scenario playing out live. Uh, so we need to monitor um, how those characteristics really manifest themselves um, as we move through this period. Um, and it may be that we don't move into an, an extended inflationary period. But I think those are the, those are the, the concerns and how we would see digital assets potentially playing a role in a more inflationary environment. Yeah, many, many great points that you brought on there. And um, one of the pushes I want to ask you about is, you know, Shimon and I published uh, a while ago, um, if you actually take asset prices, well, call it S&P or the NASDAQ, right? it doesn't matter, any asset price, and you put it in the context of the Fed balance sheet, since 2008, most indexes are actually flat. Right. And so the question is, hey, look, a lot of asset prices are increasing. The S&P is increasing. So is the NASDAQ, although they have slightly different um, the thesis behind them. And Shimon and I actually have different thoughts about the S&P versus the NASDAQ and, and where the major up, uh, asymmetric uh, upside risk will be. But there's a narrative in the industry that says, you know, there's so much liquidity out there that Bitcoin and all of these other digital assets are just completely mispriced, right? That they're just pumped up like meme stocks and like the AMCs and GameStops and Bitcoin is just another meme stock that's out there and it doesn't really hold any true uh, value and all it is is just a speculation. Yet you talked about it as a store of value. And I, I want to ask you, how do you see as, as a store of value vis-a-vis this huge liquidity increase and vis-a-vis -vis, or in the context of, um, you know, a lot of these, this memification that we're seeing now of people just jumping in uh, to a lot of these, you know, get rich quick schemes, at least as the way we see them in the U.S., because it's different from abroad. It's a great question. Um, look, I think there are several aspects to that. The first is that the value that the market assigns to something, we can argue about whether we think it's the right value, but ultimately how you value something, um, it, there are multiple ways to approach the valuation of, of certain assets, whether it's how you price the credit risk inherent within a bond, um, whether it's how you think individual equities should be, should be valued. And we could probably have a very long conversation about whether, you know, something like wine or um, or, you know, a piece of art has the correct valuation. But ultimately, you know, if a piece of art sells for X at, at you know, at, at an auction, then that's the price that somebody was willing to pay for it. So, um, so I think we have to be aware that the market has a clearing price. Now, all of those market participants um, may have different motivations. So that, but that ultimately will be reflected in, in the price. Um, so, I think when it comes to um, the asset values across the board, um, we can't, I don't think it makes sense to have a conversation about um, 
whether, you know, 30,000 or 50,000 or whatever the price is, is the right price for Bitcoin because it's always going to be in the context of, of other assets. But it's really how investors would utilize it in the context of, of a portfolio. So when I think about it from a value perspective, the key question for me is, what can I analyze and be comfortable with in terms of how an asset will behave in a portfolio context? Um, and so take that store of value question. Um, the, the biggest challenge with any of these digital currencies is they just haven't been with us for that long. And so, and they've also seen a rapid expansion in, um, in the adopters. The challenge that that poses for um, an institutional investor is that it means the track record you have is not necessarily reflective of the behavior that you're going to see going forward, given that the investor cohort has changed. Um, so, look, I think it's a, a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting topic for discussion. Um, and every asset tends to be impacted by the monetary policy in place at a particular point in time. It, I, I don't think we should expect that digital currencies um, are going to be any different in the sense that they're not tied to one single monetary policy, but they are, you are looking at monetary policy globally in essence. Yeah, this is awesome. And I'm, I'm very happy you brought the uh, institutional view uh, in terms of like, it's changing so fast, right? So like in 2017, the type of people that were interacting with these assets were very, very different from 2021. And I would love to hear your thoughts on how, how do you see institutions perceiving this, right? So because like, they can think of store of value, you know, by uh, stocks or bonds or or, you know, real estate or in any any type of kind of uh, assets with a big track record, but not so much upside as, as Bitcoin. Bitcoin has a lot more volatility, but more upside. So how do you see institutions uh, perceiving the asset and allocating to it uh, or any interesting questions you get from them? And it's a great point because when, an in when institutional investors think about how they allocate to any asset class, it's a combination of the expected return, the risk, and then the correlation that the asset has with the other assets in the portfolio. And what uh, and what every investor will seek to build is a portfolio that has that's aligned with their overall risk tolerance, but that also has some diversification within it um, in order to to better balance those risks. There are two key places that um, that we see in terms of institutional investors, and and I would agree. I mean, look, even over the last year or 18 months, we've seen a significant increase in the number of institutional investors that are um, that are adopting some form of exposure to, um, to digital assets. Um, so, and, and this is in no particular order, but the first one is um, considering it almost as a, an inflation hedge. Um, we spoke about that a little bit earlier. Um, and again, it speaks to um, the fact that Inflation is a significant concern for investors at, at present. Um, the other piece here is that the traditional inflation hedges is commodities. There, there are challenges with holding commodities in an investment portfolio because, um, one, they are quite volatile, um, perhaps not quite as volatile as some of the digital currencies, but they, they in the traditional sense, they're volatile. Um, but the second is that if you try to gain exposure through um, an index, whether it's um, uh, BCOM, whether it's um, GSCI, those indices have a lot of concentration. And between um, energy and uh, the ads, they typically count for upwards of 65% of the, of the capital exposure within the, the index. And so um, that brings with it a lot of uh, additional exposures. And, and Thirdly, commodities are hard to hold over an entire cycle because there are periods such as today where you see the global economy expanding, there's huge demand pull through, and commodities are, and particularly energy, doing very, very well. But there are long periods where they don't, and we've seen that over the last number of years. It's, um, it's been quite painful to hold. So even a small allocation in your portfolio can pull down return quite a bit. Um, so that's that's the first potential area as a store of value. Um, the second is looking at um, 
digital asset exposure more from a venture capital perspective. Now, when we look at the portfolio, generally exposure to private equity venture capital will be, um, uh, it'll be a smaller exposure. Private equity typically a bit larger than VC. Um, but when you look at the volatility profile of venture capital, you're getting a lot closer to the volatility profile of, um, uh, of a digital asset. And so those are really the, the two areas. Um, what I would also say is that the, um, the other area that we see institutional investors becoming a lot more interested in is rather than having direct exposure to currencies, that they're looking beyond that to the next stage of investing in um, firms that are explo exposing um, the blockchain technology, so really poised, poised to benefit from that. So I want to follow up on a little bit about that. Yeah, so we talked about different investor types and this different institutional investor types. Ones that see as an investor, uh, excuse me, inflation hedge, ones that want to get indirect exposure. And, you know, we're looking at the markets. There are many different types of getting indirect exposures. One is an ETF, which we in the U.S. don't have yet, but presumably you can get an ETF. One is a like GBTC, a trust. One is a micro strategy, which is a leveraged Bitcoin play uh, in the market. And then there are, Others like the riots, uh, the the, um, the mining uh, companies in the world, even like a Tesla that has some little bit exposure, more traditional business, but mostly uh, some some Bitcoin exposure. How do you see if you can bucket them maybe into I don't know two or three buckets: direct exposure, maybe ETF or GBTC trust exposure, and maybe a third bucket as some sort of you know auxiliary company exposure. Although I'm not exactly sure where Michael's strategy would fall in, <laughs> into these buckets. They seem to be changing by, by the month in terms of what they are. Where's the most institutional adoption? Why? And do you see that shifting, right? So, for example, do you see it shifting from getting paper exposure by buying equities of a riot or Michael's strategy into actually holding their own keys uh, into GBTC and into ultimately holding their own private keys into buying actual Bitcoin? It's a great question, and and look, I would say that probably the majority of institutional investors are in the same position that we are, where we're still doing the research, right? So, so we do not currently invest in or recommend that our clients include um, digital currencies as part of their um, of their asset allocation, their policy portfolios that that we develop. But when I look at the broader landscape. By far, the greatest interest is in those solutions that give you exposure to multiple digital currencies. Um, and look, it's, it's the principle of diversification coming through. Um, I would say there are a number of drivers of that. First of all, the entities that manage those solutions, will they are deeply embedded looking at what the drivers of each of those currencies are um, and also, you know, if we look at two of the largest ones, um, Bitcoin, which we know is very energy intensive versus Ether, which, you know, that is planning to move towards the, um, the, the proof of stake concept rather than the proof of work concept, which will make it much less energy intensive. Now, there are, um, there is some work, uh, underway to do something similar with Bitcoin, but it's, a little bit, um, uh, it's a little bit uh, farther down the track. So, um, so I would say by far, it is that more diversified exposure that, that's of greater interest. The question that you raise about direct holding, though, is a very interesting one because when we speak with investors, um, one of the things that is of huge concern to them is um, the the security of those assets whether it's their own ability to maintain and manage the private key um, or some of the highly publicized, um, uh, well, frankly, frauds that have been perpetrated um, where uh, holdings of digital assets have um, seemingly disappeared um, uh, overnight as a, a platform has collapsed. So. Um, so this is one of the areas where BNY um, has been really at the forefront, where we've been very much a trusted partner for our clients over um, multiple centuries. And 
for us, a natural extension of that is to move towards um, providing those, uh, those services to, uh, to institutional investors. Um, because ultimately, if we really believe that digital assets are going to become part of the broader financial ecosystem, then they should also be able to um, avail of the same services um, and the same security that traditional financial assets do. Yeah, this is uh, this is awesome, and it's it's very interesting to see how people's perception uh, of the space evolves. And you mentioned energy usage. I think this is a, a very uh, fascinating uh, topic because this is the first time, pretty much, where. Uh, you know, the problem with commodities, for example, is that as the price goes up, you can always like make more of them, whether it's like oil or gold or even real estate, right? If, if the price of land goes up, then it makes sense to build taller buildings. Uh, but with Bitcoin, it's it's a real breakthrough of like, no matter how uh, high the price goes, it just it consumes more and more energy, but the units don't change. And so I would love to hear your thoughts on like, what do you think would be the impact of, of um, you know, people adopting this? So whether it's just the general cryptocurrency technology, uh, what would be the impact on the broader economy? Let's say, you know, it holds more and more value. Uh, and, and maybe we can talk about the developed world and also the developing world. Like uh, the developing world is near and dear to my heart because like, I was born in a country that uh, had hyperinflation. Uh, luckily, we, we emigrated away before it happened, but I saw the devastating impact of that. But we see Lebanon now, even Turkey, which is more mild. So I would love to hear your thoughts on like, it will increase the energy consumption, which may be a bad thing, but it, it also has benefits to it. Um, so how do you see that impact? Well, I, first of all, this gets back to the store of value question. Um, we saw uh, a few weeks ago that El Salvador adopted uh, Bitcoin as an alternative uh, official currency in addition to the U.S. dollar. So um, it uh, that's the very first step. But certainly, if you if you think about um, an economy where there is that type of uh, accelerating, rapidly accelerating inflation. There perhaps is a loss of confidence in the domestic monetary policy. I mean, for decades, we've seen that the U.S. dollar has been adopted as the, the quasi-official currency, you know, not by the, the government, but effectively um, in terms of what people transact in day to day. And this is another alternative. The big difference here, of course, is that um, it is um, it can be used across the world. Right. It, it's not linked to any single monetary system. So. Um, so I do think that's of interest. Um, the, uh, but I think there's another piece of this, which is around uh, the energy consumption specifically. So the first part of it is, look, we're seeing already, and we're going to see more and more that Bitcoin miners are funded by renewable energy, or they're they're using renewable energy. I mean, that that's a natural output, but it's still energy being used. Um, this is where the proof of work concept is much more energy intensive, which is what Bitcoin has, has been based on. Um, were we to see all digital currencies move to proof of stake, that immediately cuts down on the amount of energy to, um, required to produce a new unit because it's, you're not requiring the mining process. New units are created based on the, the, the holdings of, um, uh, existing currency. Um, so I think that's a big piece of this. Um, but let's for a moment just zoom out to the broader applications of um, blockchain technology in this, because we're, we're really delving into the ESG world at this point. Um, there's a ton of focus on the energy consumption of Bitcoin, and it, and it, it is significant. But I think sometimes what's lost sight of in that discussion is all of the great things that blockchain technology enables us to do. Um, so, for example, um, carbon credits. So trading carbon credits uh, at present is, it, it's, you know, it's, it's not the easiest or most straightforward thing to do. But blockchain technology is going to be able to make that much more streamlined. Um, we've had examples um, in, uh, for example, if we look at 
the diamond industry. So for decades, conflict diamonds have been a real problem in the industry, and they've been trying to um, develop ways of identifying the provenance from mining through to um, end point of sale. And uh, a number of the major diamond miners have developed a blockchain-based um, system called Tracer to do exactly that. Um, and uh, so that's a very real application. And then I think the final piece of this for me is the ability of blockchain technology to bring um, uh, to bring financial services or to bring um, uh, greater involvement in the financial ecosystem to the underbanked, right? In whether that's in the uh, developing world um, or elsewhere. Um, we only have to look at the ways that uh, mobile phones actually brought effectively banking to a large cohort of the population that um, that really just did not have access to traditional banks. I think blockchain technology has the ability to um, to really move us forward in, in that direction and take a lot of costs out of the financial system because particularly where um, uh, for those who who are underbanked, you know, those costs embedded within the financial system, um, in terms of transactions, can become a, a very significant proportion for them. Yeah, I love the the analogy of the mobile phones, and if we look at, if we zoom out, just like you talked about, I, I think a lot of the because there's the U.S. is such a, a financial powerhouse of the world, we tend to look at things from a very myopic U.S.-centric point of view. And frankly, it's a very privileged point of view, and we're all lucky to be in a country that you know has a stable system, all things having you know all things being equal. It's a pretty stable and great system. Abroad, it's not the case, and even in the U.S., you have a lot of people that are unbanked, uh, unbanked or or poor credit scores, let alone in Africa. And so, your analogy of of cell phones is 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 an incredible analogy. What Android phones, for example, did in Africa, they leapfrogged the operating system. People don't use computers, but they sure as heck use cell phones to talk, to communicate, to live off of for entertainment and for finance, right? And now what Bitcoin and blockchain and a lot of these cryptocurrencies can bring is cross-border payments, an open global monetary uh, network where you can onboard all of these unbanked uh, constituents of this whole unbanked population and give them, like you talked about, an ability to um, to have to be to buy into a system that's agnostic to the government, right? It's agnostic to a potential government change. And I remember when I was at Microsoft, this is in 2016, 2017, uh, there were partnerships between Consensus, uh, I believe, in the UN of for example, uh, women landowners in African countries where you don't know if you have land rights or not. Capital property rights are so important and they're, they're crucial to any kind of uh, stable financial industry. And you were able to put things into the blockchain and say, hey, this is my land and this I have rights to this land stored in a secure, immutable global network right? that, that cannot be hacked. And so when we zoom out, all of these benefits just start popping up and putting ourselves in the shoes of, you know, as, as Shimon said, hyperinflation. I also came from a country that I came from the former Soviet Union, um, which had no property rights, which did not respect um, uh, your ability to own to own a house or own wealth. And when you see that, it's very hard to <laughs> to unsee that and very hard to underappreciate the value that an immutable ledger or the store value can can bring. And so maybe let me ask it back to you. When you look at what, when institutions come to you, uh, to BNY Mellon and, 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 and ask about digital currencies, do they, do they, are they able to see that second order insight? Do they understand that, you know, beyond our current economy, there are 6 billion people out there that are looking for a way in and looking for some sort of salvation to store wealth, to store some sort of property? Well, I would say the the specific conversation obviously varies with each individual investor. But one of the things that has come much more to the fore 
over the last couple of years is responsible investing. And, um, you know, we, we use the term responsible investing because often here in the U.S., um, ESG can sometimes have a, a context of being exclusively focused on climate. I mean, it's, it's a lot broader, but we, we tend to find that um, responsible investing resonates much more with, uh, with most investors. And yes, so the big difference, and I've spent roughly half of my career based in Europe, um, so I've seen how both how investors on both sides of the pond tend to the lens they tend to apply to investments. And I would say that when it comes to responsible investing, in Europe it is um, not exclusively, but it, it has been very climate and environmental focused. When we come to the U.S., so the U.S. has been um, a later adopter, but rapidly accelerating. And what we see is very much that, um, uh, in addition to the environment, but social issues um, and, and broader equity is at the forefront. And this is really where those more um, forward-thinking investors can uh, have identified the ability of blockchain to um, to really bring a new lens to this um, uh, to this part of the investment landscape, and it really speaks very much to impact investing. And impact investing is you, you may hear it sometimes referred to as double bottom line or even triple bottom line, but it's it's not only measuring the financial returns but also measuring the, um, the improvement in whatever the metric was within that responsible investing framework that you were, um, that you were setting out to, to achieve. And so an example could be uh, funding a microfinance initiative in an emerging market. Um, and the, the point that's really important here is that it's measurable. And um, as, we, as more blockchain technology is rolled out, this is really where we start to see the connectivity. And coming back to part of our discussion from a few moments ago, um, venture capital, private equity, you know, these are all areas where you see this starting to weave in. Uh, and it's also why when we talk about things like the energy consumption of, of digital currencies through mining, I think it's so important that we have the broader lens. Um, and look, I think a lot of... Um, a lot of investors are at the very early stages in their journey here. And that's why it's so important that we put the, the more holistic picture together. Um, because, look, you know, when Bitcoin um, uh, can have a price increase of almost $10,000 a day or $5,000 a day, you know, it feels almost like everything else pales into comparison. Um, with that, it pales into the background. But... Um, the, the underlying technology is, is really what I'm excited about. Yeah, I, I, I find it hard to say, but even more so than the currency, despite the fact I'm a currency person at heart. So I, I, I just want to add uh, one point to this. I, I, you mentioned so many great things. I want to touch upon two and highlight two. One, impact investing, and the other, um, you know, you said the, the underlying technology. And even within Bitcoin, there's Bitcoin, the, the token, and Bitcoin, the network. And many people miss uh, or conflate the two Yes, there's an appreciation price, but there's also the value in being able to store something in an immutable ledger. But I, I want to touch really quickly about impact investing because I love the about the self and I love that uh, the you, th this is kind of the mantra because so few investors in general or kind of your traditional finance players understand this. It's not just giving people value, but when people bring up the ESG concern to me, for example, I, I also talk to them and say, inevitably, renewable energy will be accelerated with Bitcoin mining because it seeks the lowest marginal cost. But I used to work in energy. And for me, Bitcoin allows a country, let's take Salvador, okay? They found the volcano, okay? There's geothermal energy there. We won't go into the cost. Some of it is frankly, uh, marketing uh, buzz that they can, you know, uh, mine the volcano. But 30% of electricity is lost in transmission. The reason why renewables aren't don't have a bigger uh, place in our energy grid is because you have transmission loss. You don't have wind everywhere. You need to 
go out and find solar in the middle of an open field and so on and so forth. What Bitcoin does actually is it allows, it creates another channel to export your natural resources. And for a country that's rich with natural resources, such as not a country, but the state of Texas, for example, or uh, Salvador that has a volcano that has been, it's been unable to tap it through any kind of policy incentives because no business wants to be at a volcano and it, it's too costly to bring the energy back to a main city. You can actually harvest and export, create a new export channel for natural resources. And this is the first time that I know in the history of humanity where we are for some reason fighting back against exporting natural resources to, to the world. Um, but maybe, I, I don't know if, if that's the way you see it as well, but I just wanted to, uh, you know, uh, give you a, a shout out, if you will, for raising the, 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 this double bottom line in impact investing, because impact investing at its core, if it's good, should make everyone money. It should be a win, 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 win. You're helping people. You're helping society. It shouldn't be a nice to have. It should be in the, in the core of everyone's investment decisions and everyone's business. And it should be a moneymaker. Otherwise, it's a bad investment. And I think actually blockchain, crypto, and, and Bitcoin will lead there. And look, I think um, that's one of the pieces that's really important. And you know, there, there is a line between impact investing and philanthropy. Philanthropy is a, is a different thing. But with impact investing, you're trying to deliver on both objectives, right? It has to make financial sense and it has to have a measurable effect in the areas that you're targeting. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. I didn't expect uh, for us to talk about impact investing, but it was literally my favorite course in business school. And, and just like hearing the, the specific stories like, like grain farmers in India, right? They, when they can borrow a roof that uh, you know, protects their grain. So when it rains, it doesn't spoil their grain. It changes the whole behavior. It's more like long-term planning, uh, more productivity. For me, I'm very excited about Bitcoin because I think it will help humans to flourish. Um, because like we sometimes in the developed world don't, don't think about those things, but in the developing world, right? If you cannot store your value, you just consume everything that you produce. And so what, what the impact of that across generations is like, you see that there's no capital being built. And so the fact that somebody can store $5, $10 worth of value in a way where they can then, you know, give it to their kids or, or plan or like buy a little machine that can, you know, amplify their labor. That's extremely exciting to me. Um, and I wanted to ask, uh, do you think there's opportunities for, like we spoke about the network, uh, financial entities, now that they can plug into all of these billions of people, uh, do you think there's like opportunities to create yield? Uh, would it be through lending? Would it be through uh, different financial services uh, that currently are just like not uh, cost effective because the basically currently the system it has a, a fixed cost per transaction which basically excludes everybody it's not so much a technology problem it's more of a, of a of an issue where you have to pay like 30 cents for a transaction that suddenly like many transactions become like not profitable to to service uh, so do you or, or any institutional investors see opportunity in that or is it too early um, we're very early. Sometimes I forget like how early we are. Well, uh, the way that I think about it is, is as follows. Um, as these digital currencies get more integrated into the financial ecosystem, you're going to see more of the things that we would associate with more traditional assets come through. Um, you know, there are entities that, um, that lend already. Um, so, you know, the first thing, for example, that you would need to um, uh, to really start creating some more of those types of instruments is, is the ability to lend. Um, we've obviously got Bitcoin futures as well. Um, so early days, but but we're starting. Um, but I, I do think, I mean, you, you've talked about all the tremendous things that um, that some of these currencies could bring. But I do think as part of that conversation, we also need to talk about regulation because that's, that's the piece that, that we don't have. And it's one of the, um, well, we have it to a marginal extent, but the thing that we really need in order for these currencies to become a, um, a bigger part of the broader financial ecosystem is investor protection. 
And that's what a lot of the regulation is about, right? It's making sure that um, the any of the entities that are um, uh, that are holding your digital currencies for safekeeping that they have to meet certain requirements. That for stable coins that they have the the backing assets. Um, and look, that often um, I think that when we talk about regulation generally, there's a sense that it's going to stifle innovation, it's going to make this into something else. But look, if we really want people to trust this and use it broadly, they have to have confidence in it. And that's one of the things that regulation brings, because it, it just brings with it all of that investor protection. Um, but what would bad regulation be? Well, look, it's going to be regulation that just stifles innovation. Um, and that that's a very delicate balance. I also think it's um, it's one of the reasons why um, at the, the U.S. regulators, obviously, we've got Gary Gensler at the SEC, um, and uh, he lectured at MIT Sloan on um, on the digital asset ecosystem, um, and so he understands it very well. Um, and I think, look, the fact that regulators are being thoughtful is is good, um, but there, there's no doubt in my mind the regulation is coming. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think everyone that's serious about the space actually would say regulation, clear regulation, thoughtful regulation is a great thing. You know, AML, KYC, I don't think any institution is going to say, no, don't, you know, I, I'm fighting against AML and KYC and investor protections. And like you said, as long as it's thoughtful and doesn't stifle innovation, which thankfully the U.S. has more or less of a good history of, of doing, um, it will be welcome. But well, let's just pivot it back in the final few minutes that we have to to you uh, and BNY. And, you know, tell us a little bit about, it's very, you guys are, are trailblazers in many ways of, uh, of, of jumping in and, and embracing this digital asset space. Has it, you know, what's been the reaction, either internally or externally, whatever you can tell us, is it, has it been a differentiator? How do you see the world and, and what do you, what can you offer clients that makes BNY Mellon really stand out? Yes, a, a trailblazer for the last 200 years, so thank you, yes. Um, and uh, look, we announced the formation of our digital asset unit and our intent to offer a number of services through that earlier this year. I would say the, um, the overwhelming response from clients uh, was, how soon are you going to be in this space? Because you're our trusted partner across many other parts of our investment landscape. Um, we, we are very interested in the digital asset space, but we need to see some of the, um, some of the infrastructure that really uh, supports all of the other parts of our business in place for digital assets as well. Um, and that, that's really what has led to um, the development of our digital assets offering um, and our our aim to to bring that to market as, as quickly as possible, um, you know, across the uh, across whether it's within the U.S., Europe, Asia, we're a trusted partner across many different client segments, many of the largest investors in the world. Um, and so the the confidence and the trust that they place in us to to do this and 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 it's not it's not about being the first to roll it out. It's really being thoughtful, having the right infrastructure in place, and um, and thinking through steps like, for example, the the KYC piece that you mentioned, partnering with um, uh, with offerings that will allow us to do that in a way that we know the regulators will be comfortable with, right? So maybe it's not going just one step back in the chain, it's going, you know, three, four, or five steps back in the chain, um, and helping to set the standards for what that needs to be. Awesome, this is fantastic. So, Sinead, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, to finish it up, we asked this question for our guests. Uh, do you have any recommendation for our viewers? It can be a great book to read, uh, an activity to do. Uh, it doesn't have to be the best book, but just anything interesting you've come across uh, over the last couple of weeks, months. Okay. Your top tip. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I don't know that I'm going to say this is my, my, uh, my, it's not my top investing tip, but, um, 
I am going to give a plug to one of my fellow country people. Um, so there is a show that uh, is on Hulu. Um, it landed last week. It's called This Way Up. It's written by Ashling B, who is a fellow Irish woman. It's a tremendous comedy about um, uh, two Irish women based in London who have, you know, they've moved from, from Ireland and everything that happens to them. One of the funniest shows. So um, in, uh, in the spirit of helping people navigate streaming, I think that's a, a tremendous recommendation and uh, um, one of the funniest shows that you'll see. Well, fantastic. Thanks so much for, for the, that tip, for the top tip. So this way up, this way up on Hulu. This way up, yes. This way up on Hulu. And um, if anyone wants to understand and find out more about your solutions, BOY Mellon Solutions, you know, who should they reach out to? We'll put it in the show notes, of course, but um, what's the best way of getting in contact with you or the PR department or, or whoever uh, you can uh, recommend to talk to? Um, so I would say that um, uh, working through my colleague, Ben Tanner uh, at BNY, he is, he's the best person to reach out to, and he makes sure that, the, um, that the, the inquiry gets to the right person, whether it's me or one of my colleagues. Fantastic. Well, we'll put Ben on the spot um, in a little bit in the show, so uh, we'll, we'll direct all traffic to him. Sinead, huge pleasure. Thank you for coming on. I love that we, like Shimon said, that we pivoted to impact investing. Both of us believe in it. I think most Bitcoiners and crypto uh, and crypto asset enthusiasts, no matter how loud they can get on Twitter and online, ultimately want the best for humanity. And they're trying to build a better world. And impact investing is at the heart of it. And I think once more institutions really understand it, um, it will just be inevitable, you know, snowball, domino effect, whatever metaphor we wanna we wanna use. But um, I think it's coming, and it just it's going to come quicker than people think. So uh, thank you for being on the show. Uh, Shimon, do you want to say anything? Yeah, I just wanted to say it's, I'm tremendously bullish seeing, you know, traditional financial institutions have such, a, you know, um, just like thought leadership and, and being so on top of the space. And, and yeah, Sinead, it was a, a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you both. I've, I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. Um, and uh, yes, I look forward to hearing more of your podcast.